in his day, Jesus looked at the religious people. One could call them the church-going people of his day. They were the holy ones, the Pharisees. And he asked them a question. It's in Matthew 22, 42. I want to ask you the question. You don't have to turn there. Think of the question that he asked. What do you think of Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one? What, what do you make of the Messiah? According to the Bible, how you answer that question shapes your eternity. That question is life's great fork in the road. How you answer that question, what do you think of Christ? It shapes your eternity. We will all live somewhere forever. Faith and repentance are that turn in the fork in the road to Jesus Christ our Lord. We give him our sin. That's all we have to bring to God, our guilt, our estrangement from him. And through the death of Jesus Christ, that was the means God used to bring us to himself. And in repentance and faith, we come to follow Jesus and come to have eternal life. We all must reckon with Jesus. I mean, our whole chronicling of time turns in history on the birth of Jesus Christ. You have those days leading up to the birth of Christ and then the days after Christ was born. Uh, uh, our whole reckoning of years, here we are 2,020-some years hence from the birth of Jesus. All of history turning on that. That makes sense because God becoming man is the defining piece of history that we all must reckon with. Families develop a corporate disposition toward Jesus. By that I mean that uh, there are characteristics within each family. Uh, statistically, those who study children who come to place their faith in Christ and come to follow him as a child do so statistically largely in homes where the mom and the dad are followers of Jesus Christ. And so it becomes a characteristic of the family. I grew up in Springfield, Ohio, it's a community in the county and the city of about 150,000 people, the local newspapers, the Springfield News and Sun. Well, if there's only 150,000 people in the town, there's not a lot to report all the time. So they would publish the records, uh, the court records. And so uh, everybody who wanted to be a busybody in the community loved to rifle through the court records. But there, there was this, this one family that uh, they were famous for perennially showing up in the court records. It was a misdemeanor for this and a misdemeanor for that, and every once in a while they'd have an overachiever, you know, and it was a felony for that, and then a, a real overachiever, you know, a third-degree felony for this and that and charges, and it made the court records. And after a while, you'd look, and you just shake your head. That there, there's that family again, because families develop habits and disposition which shape their lives. We're looking at Esau and his family developed a disposition toward God and his word and his promises years ago. But now as we end this series on Esau today, we're going to look at how Esau meets Jesus. But rather than some historical deep dive, 
This is a mirror that we stare at and ask ourselves, what is my response to Jesus? Because Esau's children's response to Jesus is fascinating. Come with me this morning to Luke chapter 9. That's where we'll start. We'll go two different directions. Direction number one, we'll look at this question. What do you think of Christ? It was the question that Jesus asked the religious people of his day, the church-going folk, as it were. And so I ask you this morning, what do you think of Christ? We'll look at three declarations under this first point. The second point, then, we're going to see Herod. Herod the Tetrarch has three encounters of Jesus. And in his three encounters of Jesus, there's three different dispositions toward Jesus that men and women and boys and girls have. Um, I just don't want you to get to the great day and say to our Lord, Hey, I hung around Jesus a little bit. I was interested in him a little bit. Why? I even endured those messages that Eric Mounts preached at Calvary. I hung around Calvary a little bit. Saul, uh, uh, Herod, the Tetrarch, he is called, he's an interesting study because he reminds us that you can be in and around Jesus, have curious interest in Jesus, and never make it to the pay dirt of saving faith and unique trust and reliance upon Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's what we'll do this morning. We'll turn and look at Herod the Tetrarch. So first, what do you think about Christ? Three declarations. First, in the Gospels, King Herod and his sons were Esau's descendants. Esau has a family. His family goes to Mount Seir. They become the Edomites. They populate that part of the world. They become quite a substantial uh, people group. In about 600 B.C., before Jesus is born, about 600 years, the Nabataeans take over their kingdom and push them out. So what's left of them runs to these vacated towns in Judah, that because Judah was carried off to Babylon, so they just took their cities, and this became an area called the Idumean area. Now, you don't have to remember that, but it's just, this is Esau's people, now called in Jesus' day the Idumeans. Well, the Romans hooked up uh, an Idumean leader that they recognized had some moxie to lead, King Herod, he is called, and he becomes a very prominent leader. He, he leads the, the area... Uh, for over 40 years, from 37 B.C. until 4 A.D. So he's there for more than 40 years. His big achievement is he redid the temple. And when he redid it, he redid it. He spared nothing. Of course, he wanted to aggrandize himself to the people and the Jews and, and, and that they'd really like him. If you want to do that, uh, pimp out the temple. And so he did. In fact, one rabbi said this, whoever has never seen the temple has not seen a beautiful building. Now, they've been working on, some of you have been there in Barcelona, what, the uh, La Familia Sagrada for over 100 years. And the engineers of families and come and gone and died and grandsons are now working on it. They worked on the temple for 86 years, 46 of which was during the time that King Herod the Great 
was ruling. Now, of course, General Titus, the Roman general in AD 70, tore the whole temple down. And so all of our monuments that we make to ourselves, and that, that's what happens, but that, that happened. Now, second declaration. King Herod the Great sets a course for his family's response to Jesus. Jay read it this morning. It's the old wise man story. And what happened to those infants in Bethlehem when, as they were moved by God not to go back and tell King Herod where to find Jesus, uh, he realizes he's been outwitted. And so uh, this was characteristic of him. Remember, this is a guy that had his wife killed and had two of his sons murdered uh, just to stay in power and because this is what he was like. And what we have here is the logarithmic uh, catching up of the Esau spirit, all those years bred in generations of rebellion against a God who is holy and right altogether. And what do you get? You get this kind of ferment and this dastardly character, King Herod. So he sends down soldiers who find every child, male child, two years old and under, and kill them. Can you imagine the carnage? This is, of course, in fulfillment of prophecy. Now, it is true that Bethlehem was a two-bit hamlet that nobody hardly knew where it was. I don't think they had a stoplight. And I don't think they had a stop sign. And it's very small. So we're not talking about a whole range of babies, but even one baby loss is a great tragedy. And no doubt several were killed who were children under or male children under two years old. But what we have is a ruthless guy. He's Esau-spirited. Is it any wonder we see such a spirit in the life of his sons that we shall see Herod the Tetrarch has three encounters with Jesus? So the third thing is we reproduce after our own kind. I love to talk to teachers before the school year starts. Everybody's all fired up. They're all set for a new year. They're starting over. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful year. And they're fired up. I, I love to do that. And, and Bill Dickens gives me that privilege uh, e each year. And I, I, I look forward to that very much. Uh, a couple years ago, I, I, you can't tell them the same thing every year, but a couple years ago I told them, you know, hey, let's ponder this verse, Luke 640. Everyone, after he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. You know, every teacher, they massage the culture of their class in September and they whip them into shape and they set up the boundaries and they hold all the boundaries and then uh, you get to October, then you get to November, December, January. You ever run into a teacher about March? You know, they, they've had it. Their class is driving them nuts. And I hate to remind them that everyone after he's fully trained will be like his teacher. You get what you deserve. You know what, you've been working six months on developing the culture of the class. Now, that, you know, we laugh at that, but children, everyone after he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Now, I realize that the race is not always to the parental swift, but I ask you this morning, what's coming out the pipeline at your home? You know what came out of Herod's pipeline? Esau's spirit, because it was never worked out of the family at all. In fact, Malachi 1.4, we looked at this passage last week, it declares, Edom is a wicked country whom God is angry with forever. Because that rebellious spirit, that 
I'm going to do anything I want and I'm not bowing down to anyone and I'm ruthlessly going to prosecute my life forward, that showed up all the way down the line and it does again here. Now, based on your disposition toward Christ as a parent, what are we reproducing in our homes? Are our children growing up with a sense of recognizing what it looks like in mom and in dad to hunger and thirst for righteousness? And are they marked by that? Or do we have so many other hungers and thirsts in this below world that is passing that our kids get confused about just what exactly we ought to be hungering and thirst for? Because it is possible to say that we are hungering and thirst for A, oh yeah, we're seeking first the kingdom of God, <laughs> and our life is saying everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. What do you think about Christ? Now let's look at Herod the Tetrarch. What is our response to meeting Jesus? There are many responses to Jesus that masquerade as if they were, this is the right response. This is how to do it. I'm doing it right. And you see hints of that in Herod, the Tetrarch. Let's consider three encounters that he had with Jesus. And let's remember Acts 4.27, Luke, who writes also the Gospel of Luke, he writes Acts, and he writes this. In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So Herod the Tetrarch finds himself, he, he earns a spot in the text saying he set himself up against Jesus. Now one of the larger questions is how'd that work for him? Because how does it work in life when we set ourselves up in opposition to Jesus? Let's look at ourselves in Herod. And his three responses to Jesus. First, our restless soul can be curious. Come with me to Luke 9, 7 through 9. Here's encounter number one. He's the tetrarch, the ruler, the arch ruler over Nazareth and Galilee, which the first part of Jesus' ministry was all there. Here's what the text says. Now Herod the tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. Now let me just stop reading and say we've jumped in the text after Herod has killed John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was the MC. Uh, he was the person introducing Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What did Herod do to him? He cut his head off. You remember the story? And I'll just tell you more about it in a minute. Let me come back to 9.8. Okay. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this whom I hear such things? Don't miss this last sentence. And he sought to see him. Here you have a curious man who had heard so much about Jesus. By the way, it's hard to ignore Jesus. I mean, our reckoning of years turns on his birth. 
Western culture is built on notions of faith in Jesus. And so it, it's just hard to dismiss Jesus. We all have to reckon with Jesus. And because he's God, we all must reckon with Jesus. Herod represents one trying to come to grips with who Jesus is. Have you come to grips with who he is and whom God revealed himself to be? Now, Herod the Tetrarch had a fascinating history. Wife number one was an alliance marriage. He married the daughter of a king in the neighborhood. Now, you know, European aristocracy, that's what they did. If you want to have peace, you know, marry somebody's daughter, and then they won't fight with each other. Well, so he married somebody's daughter, and it was an arranged marriage, so his rule would get on better. Then he went to visit his brother, called by some Philip, by others in other places, Aristophos or something like that. I can't even enunciate his name right. He goes over to see him, and he noticed that he married a really fine-looking woman, Herodias. She was beautiful. He was attracted to her. He was also a son of Esau. Remember how Esau all the way along was driven by his flesh? Remember, he gave away his inheritance for a bowl of French onion soup. His he was hungry. And so here he is. He goes over and he notices this woman. During the visit to his brothers, he gets her in the side room and says, hey, look, let's get hooked up. And she says, you got to divorce your wife. He says, no problem. So he leaves, divorces his wife, and they get hooked up. And it was great. Until this rabble-rouser out in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey, stands up, John the Baptist, and says, that's wrong. They are violating the law of God, and God, for our good, has urged us not to live like that. And they need to repent. Now, as you can imagine, Herodias wasn't very happy with this development. The preacher's out there calling our name. It's interesting. Uh, Billy Sunday, with all of his flaws in the 19-teens and 20s, was used to share Jesus with others. And he was, he was quite a circus to be around him. One of the things he would do was he'd come into a town, and he would find out who the notorious sinners were in town. And so then he'd stand up, and he would point them out, you know, like in one of the early nights of his meetings in the church. He'd have a way of sending shockwaves. He was like, what, the, what did he just say? Call them by name. Pray for them even then by name. Uh, well, John the Baptist was a truth teller. He was courageous and bold. By the way, he reminds us what a rebellious culture does to a truth teller. And Jesus reminds us that there was no greater prophet who ever lived than John the Baptist. That's what he says after he died. So I'm going to read to you Mark 6, 18 to 20, because it says something about this curious interest that Herod the Tetrarch has in Christ. By the way, what is to be said about you? A curious interest in Christ? Fascinated? By him or deep affection for him because he loved us and gave himself for us. Mark 6, 18 to 20. Right, let me back up a little bit. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. 
when he started hearing about there's some other young upstart out here and the masses are following him, he thought to himself, oh no, God has raised John the Baptist from the dead. Now some others said Elijah. Remember, Elijah uh, went out in a blaze of glory, if anybody ever did. That, that may have been the start of that phrase. Uh, he went in the fiery chariot to heaven. He never died. And so that, 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 during Passover, they always set a place for Elijah because they just never knew when he was going to come back. And so some said, no, it's Elijah. Elijah's out there. And others said, no, it's, it's one of the prophets of old. So everybody's trying to figure out what's going on, including Herod the Tetrarch. But sitting on his conscience is the fact that he had beheaded John the Baptist. John, of whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. It's interesting how Mark describes Herod's wife. His brother Philip's wife. Because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Notice the sensitivities that Herod Tetrarch had. He had enough sensitivity to recognize God is using that man. That's one of God's men. I need to be careful here. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. That's a fascinating verse about Herod the Tetrarch's interest in Jesus. I love your interest in Jesus. You just need a lot more in that when you stand before him on the great day and give an account for how you've lived. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men to Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Remember how Esau's people were just driven around by the power of their flesh? Here's another footnote. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. He's grandstanding, probably influenced by the spirits he's been drinking. All the others are at the party. He makes this big declaration. He vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. She went out, said to her mother, for what should I ask? I think this is the shortest distance between a question and an answer in the New Testament. Herodias knew what to ask for. She was like a, a, a trap set waiting to trip. The head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so he sent his men, cut off his head, put it on a platter and presented it to her. And he lived with a violated conscience the rest of his life. But he has this perplexing interest in Jesus. Now, how do we know all this? Remember Luke meticulously researched this? That's what he tells us in the preamble to the gospel. Well, one of the followers of Jesus, according to um, Luke 8, 3, was Joanna, the wife of Chusa. Her husband's a member of Herod's court. And so Christianity, as it grew and more disciples came, these stories, Luke picks up on these stories that are the background stories. In Acts 13, in verse 1, in Antioch, when they got ready to pray together and send out the first group, it says one of the prophets and teachers, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And so you have these people who are around Herod at this time who are hearing his perplexities. By the way, that word perplexity, it's a word used of the disciples in Luke 24 when they come to the tomb and the, 
the rocks rolled away. It's like, what in the world? It's used of Peter who has that dream. Peter was a kosher Jewish guy. He has a dream to eat all that unclean food. Remember the sheet came down and he woke up from that dream and said, what in the world was that? He was perplexed. A good Jewish boy doesn't eat any of those things. What is going on? He's perplexed. That's the word here. In Luke 9, 9, the pronoun I is used twice. John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such thing? Godet said this about the two times using this personal pronoun. It's the echo of an alarmed conscience. Herod the Tetrarch is upset. By the way, isn't it interesting that Jesus cannot be discovered through secondhand reports and rumors? That's how Herod the Tetrarch is trying to figure this out. What do you think about Jesus? Please understand that curious interest in him is not the same as faith in the New Testament. To be fascinated with Jesus as a historic figure, to be perplexed by all the things that are said about him, to try to get your arms around all that he claimed about himself, you can do all of that and not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do you know him as your Savior this morning? What is our response to Jesus? In the middle of the hippie movement in the 1970s on the beaches in California, the Jesus movement was born. Chuck Smith and Calvary Church, Maranatha Music grows out of this in the 70s. Well, the Doobie Brothers got into this a little bit, the popular rock group, and they recorded a song. In fact, it's on their Greatest Hits album. It's, of all their songs, it's a bad song on the Greatest Hits album. But anyway, uh, it's a song that says, Jesus is just all right with me. It was like, okay, we'll dabble in a little bit of Jesus. And, you know, he, yeah, he's all right. Jesus is all right. And if you ask Herod, he would say, you know, Jesus is all right. But please understand that he's not held up in Scripture as a model of how to respond to Jesus. But there's more, and let's consider. Here's his second encounter. Our hiding soul protects its autonomy. Come with me to Luke 13. Jesus keeps getting more and more popular. Three years in, everybody seemingly is interested in him, and he's had about all he can take. He's finished with Jesus. And so... uh, Luke 13, 31 to 33 say this. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, that's Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following because it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Hear the word of the Lord. Here Herod models a hiding soul protecting his autonomy. Isn't it fascinating that suddenly the Pharisees are interested in the welfare of Jesus? Jesus, Herod wants to kill you. You say, what's going on? Where's Bob Mueller when we need him? There's collusion going on between the Pharisees and Herod. In fact, this has already showed up before in Mark. I think it's 3.6. Here's what it said. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, that's Jesus, how to destroy him. So they developed in collusion a conspiracy to take Jesus down. 
And this is all part of the conspiracy. Let's push him. Let's get him to Jerusalem. All the while thinking their engineered plan is making this work. They were saying, man, this is really coming together. We're doing a great job. But Jesus in his answer makes self-evidently clear that he's being moved around by his constraint to submit to the will of God. And he is on God's timetable and will go to Jerusalem when it's his time to go to Jerusalem. And he'll tell them, I'm going to do today, I'm going to do tomorrow, and the third day I'm going to go down there. And he anticipates what's before him, willingly embracing it on our behalf. But what he says is the Pharisees say, you better leave. Herod wants to kill you. Now remember, he's already killed John the Baptist. There's good reason to be afraid. Jesus was undaunted. In fact, he sends a message. He sees right through the ruse. He gets right to the bottom in his report of collusion. He says, you go tell that fox. Why would he say that to the Pharisees? Unless he was calling them out and exposing the fact that they were conspiring together to be against them, which was crazy. Give, we need to give up all of our efforts to stand in Jesus' way and stand opposed to him. Remember Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage and the nations imagine a vain thing? The Lord who sits in the heavens, he laughs at that folly. He has seated his king. We'll get to kissing the sun in a minute. Our hiding soul protects its autonomy. What's going on in Herod's heart? Herod wanted to be the king of his kingdom and keep people out of his kingdom who were going to disturb the peace. And he loved his autonomy. You go tell that fox. That was not a compliment. In Jewish literature in the first century, foxes were noted to be deceitful and conniving, unwilling to face it face to face and working in the background. What does he say? You go tell that fox. I'm on God's agenda. And it called the Pharisees out as well, who then were exposed as colluding with him. Herod sought to hide from his obligation to respond to Jesus. John the Baptist's death was already sitting on his conscience. He wanted to get rid of him. He didn't want to kill Jesus. It's like, okay, just just get him out of here. How can we get him out of here? And so he pushed him out of his life. Do you realize it's possible to order our lives pushing Jesus Christ out of our lives? Is that you? Is that me? Herod's great issue was, hey, Jesus wants to displace me as king. It's about my place, my prominence, my pride, my kingdom. I like that a lot better than being a subject of anybody else's kingdom. By the way, are we humble enough to receive meek and lowly Jesus as our king? Are we humble enough to recognize our need and our sin and bring ourselves to this great king of all the earth and give ourselves to him? It was easier for Herod with Esau's spirit to maintain the status quo. It was easier for Herod to avoid Jesus because then he could avoid accountability, repentance, and submission. Now I'm good, Jesus. I'm fine running my own life. By the way, how's that going for you? Remember that great plan that Herod the Tetrarch had to nab his brother's wife and bring her home and ditch his wife? Well, 
that alliance marriage came back to haunt him. That didn't play well when that daughter went back to her dad, King, and said, you know what? Herod just divorced me for his brother's wife. And he said, I'll straighten that out. And after Jesus was crucified, he came and took down Herod the Tetrarch and undermined his leadership, and he was banished. Can't we all just recognize that we are not fine running our life apart from submission to he who loved us and gave himself for us? Well, finally, our mocking soul does not recognize Jesus as Lord. Come with me to Luke 23. You remember, and it, it was for Pilate a fortuitous visit. Uh, for some reason, Herod went to Jerusalem. That was outside of his jurisdiction. It wasn't his place of rule. But he went down to Jerusalem, but it was timely because Pilate is wringing his hands thinking, what in the world have I got to do with Jesus? You know, he's this guy from Galilee, and here he is. Oh, what? Herod's in town? I know what I'll do. I'll send him over to Herod. Hey, you, you go over there to Herod. Let, let it, you're, you're from Galilee, Nazareth. You go over there. That's Herod's domain. And so he was sent to see him. Luke 23, 6 through 12. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 8 of chapter 23 in Luke says this. Herod was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. Verse 9, he, said he wanted to see a sign. Show me the sideshow. I want to see it right here. Do something. Cool. He questioned him at some length. He had questions for him. Herod was playing with Jesus, intrigued, but he felt no sense of need. Jesus doesn't make any sense until we realize how desperately we need him. And then no one is more beautiful than Jesus, and nothing can stand in our way of submitting ourselves to him. Jesus had neither words nor miracles with a man of such heart. He made no answer. Can't you imagine that for Herod, as he's peppering him with questions and he makes no answer, that that sin shivers up Herod's spine when he realized, hey, wait a minute, we're dealing with someone that's not usual. He's not even responding. He's way good with not responding. Now, the astute Jewish person may think of Isaiah, who 700 years before had written in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and, he aff and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Herod sends him back with a white robe, the robe of Jewish royalty, but also a subtle declaration of this guy's innocent, but also the mocking of him as a king, making sport of him, and then... He sends him back. 
Herod made a tragic and eternal miscalculation because he saw no threat in Jesus Christ. He had no fear of God before his eyes. But don't miss Herod's keen interest, Luke 23, 8. He was intrigued by Jesus, but sensing no need for Jesus. And so he mocked Jesus and sent him back. What is the right response to Jesus? It's recognizing that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. It's recognizing that in him is all sufficiency. In fact, what Peter would say is all that we need for life and godliness. It's seeing in him one most beautiful, that no devotion is too much to yield up to him. Esau's folk ran into Jesus and it didn't go very well. How about you? No curious interest is going to pass for saving faith in Jesus Christ. No intrigue about all he's doing is going to get it. It has to come in a willingness to give up our seat on the throne of our lives and give it to the King of glory, Jesus Christ our Lord. Faith is submission to a new authority in finding in so doing life as we could never have imagined. My seminary professor prayed for his dad, who was a good, he was good at being a pagan for all of his life. Near the end of his life, his father, who had been a career military man, it's Howard Hendricks, uh, he came to faith in Christ near the end of his life with his son, who led him into a personal relationship with Christ. And as I recall the story, they knelt in the moment that he acknowledged receipt of Jesus Christ as Savior, recognizing his sin, that he was estranged, recognizing that God had sent a Savior in Jesus Christ our Lord and receiving Christ into his life. And if you ever are with a person in this setting, you're always wondering, Lord, what's really going on in their heart? Is this an authentic matter that the Spirit of God is bringing about? You always exercise a judgment of charity and believe it, but desire to see the power of the gospel at work in the person's life. But early on, Howard Hendricks got a great signal because they got up from praying, and his dad, who had been accustomed to this for his life, saluted and said, Son, I want you to know that I am now under a new commanding officer. And Dr. Hendricks from that moment realized his dad realized something about the identity of Jesus. And isn't that what we owe him? And how could we live as if something else was true other than that Jesus Christ is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords and deserves every bit of our allegiance and every bit of every piece of our life and our heart that he has given us. Let's pray. How does this message come to you? What do you need to say to the Lord this morning? Is there any Esau in your heart that you need to offload to our Lord in decisive conversation in this moment?
Is God revealing to your heart that you've been trifling with Jesus rather than yielding to the supreme authority in heaven and earth? Are you the Lord of your life or is Jesus? Do you have all rights to your life or does Jesus? What do you need to say to Jesus as this service closes this morning? Let's pray. Now, Lord, we're going to sing and we're going to leave. Nobody's ever moved by a harangue. Lord, what moves us is to realize that the King of kings and Lord of lords is lovingly disposed toward us and cares deeply for us. Thank you. That moves us. That moves us away from being our own king of our own empire. That moves us away from a love of sin, draws us unto a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It leads us away from trifling pursuits that one half second after we breathe our last won't matter at all. And brings us into yearning for those treasures that last forever. And reserved exclusively, exclusively for those who give themselves to you. God, will you do a work in this room? Keep somebody from talking about us after we're dead like I'm talking about Herod this morning. And while what I'm saying is true, it's equally tragic. Oh, Lord, help us yield, overwhelmed by your love, to our new commander, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name I pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's worship.